Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Coogee Voice. Today we're talking with Alexa Towersy. Action Alexa is an internationally published sports model, celebrity trainer and nutrition and lifestyle coach with over 15 years experience in the health and fitness industry. In this uplifting conversation, Alexa shares stories of her own transformation through her motivational talking and fitness. You're listening to Coogee Voice. For me, it's always been my number one self-care strategy. Like right from the days where I was bullied at school and when my mum was going through her own mental health challenges, the gym was kind of like the first place that I felt at home. And I had a partner at the time and I turned to him in the morning after this and was like, dear God, I am never drinking again. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And then he was like, rolled his eyes and he's like, yeah, 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 till next weekend. And um, that was the last time I touched alcohol. Surround yourself with people who absolutely understand why it is that you want to do what you want to do and who are willing to support you through it. Alexa, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? I am very well, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It is a pleasure. Now, before we get into the show, talking about all of your work in fitness and mental health, what brought you to the eastern suburbs and what do you love most about it? This is actually, funnily enough, my favorite place that I've ever lived in the entire world. And let me tell you, I have lived in some crazy places all the way through from military school in Germany through to Party Central in Hong Kong, but Sydney and Eastern Suburbs is my favorite by far. I think what I love most about it being that I'm in the health and fitness industry is I love that it's kind of like you've got that awesome mix of both being urban and then you've got coastal as well. You know, like for me, one of my favorite things to do on the weekend is get out and get on the coastal walk. There's not many places in the world that you can be in the city and then within 15, 20 minutes be walking along some of the most magnificent scenery around. So... Love it. And there's great coffee. We will get to that a little (laughs) bit later. Now, you're the founder of Creating Curves, a fitness coach, sports model, body double, mental health advocate. Where do we start? Who is Alexa? God, that's such a loaded question, isn't it? I have so many hats that I wear or I have chosen to wear. I think I'm probably like the sum of my stories. So I have done so many things in my life. I've tried to be a jack of all trades and I've kind of found that that leaves you being a master of none. So I would probably say that I am a strength coach and that I'm a passionate advocate for mental health. Those are kind of the two hats that I wear currently and then I dabble in everything else. I'm a little bit of an adrenaline junkie. So if you feel like you can scare me, I'm all in. Let's start with mental health. What motivated you to want to sort of get into that area and start solving those problems? I think, look, the biggest thing that happened to me, two things happened to me when I was 15. Um, So my story started really early on. The first thing was that I was bullied at school for being too skinny. My nickname at school was actually Alexa Anorexa. I know, how horrible is that? But, you know, if only the haters could see me flex now. Um, the second thing that happened and probably the biggest thing that turned my life around was that my mum was diagnosed with manic depression or, you know, as we now know it as bipolar. 
and overnight my entire life changed. So my mum was the stranger to me. My dad didn't know she was anymore. I didn't know she was. And literally half the time my mum didn't know she was. And it was a really tough time because back in those days there was no awareness around mental health, mental illness, suicide, and I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know who to say it to. I didn't know if there was anyone to talk to. And so I said absolutely nothing. And honestly, if you ask me what my dad thought about the situation then, no idea because not once did we have a conversation about it. Um, And it all came to a head when I was 17 and two weeks before my university entrance exams, my mum actually tried to take her life and I intervened. So I walked in as the scenario was occurring and I intervened. And it was probably, I'd say, the most heartbreaking day of my life because, you know, I knew that we were struggling. I knew that she was struggling. I knew that I was having a really rough time. But I really didn't know that she was at a point where she felt like that was kind of her only option. And, you know, I truly believe that if we had the awareness and the education and the resources that we have now, it might not have changed her diagnosis, but it would have better enabled me to understand what was happening and it would have better enabled me to give her the love and the support that she deserved because I really, really struggled with that and it really did change the dynamics of our relationship. And that was kind of the first time that I really encountered mental illness. And I think at that point, I I always knew that should I ever be given a platform to talk about it, that I wanted to use my experiences to then help other people deal with whatever they were going through. You're a mental health advocate for Livin. I am. Can you tell us a little bit about Livin and the type of advocacy and work and the programs that they do? Yeah, sure. Look, I've been ambassador for Livin for almost six years now. Um, I actually lived with one of the co-founders when he first moved to Sydney from the Gold Coast. It is a not-for-profit it's 100% not-for-profit. Everything that we make via donations goes straight into funding our community programs, which means that we go into schools, into rural communities. I spent a couple of months in the mines a couple of years ago talking to the boys about mental health. We run fundraisers. We do extreme athletic events. Uh, we have a range of apparel with our mantra, it ain't weak to speak. So essentially, after one of – it was founded by two – two best mates that were on the Gold Coast, their other best mate, Dwayne Lally, took his own life in 2013 and they didn't want his life to be in vain. They saw firsthand the havoc that his suicide had on his family, his friends and the community and they basically wanted to take something good out of the situation because when he was up, he was like the life of the party. He was always about living life to the fullest And they wanted to, you know, they didn't want his life or his death to be in vain. And they founded Living Off the Back of That, which was all about encouraging other people to live their life to the fullest. And their mantra at Ain't Week to Speak is it's all about, I guess, inspiring and empowering and educating more people to have more conversations that could save more lives. And that's what the apparel line essentially does. Like when you're wearing something with a mantra like it ain't week to speak, it really does start conversations. And When you see other people wearing it or you see someone who has a bumper sticker on their car, you kind of go, you know what, I'm not alone. That's someone, if I was having a really rough day, I could probably go up and have a conversation and they'd be totally fine with it. So it's got a real community spirit behind it. You've touched on some of the programs which very much are based around or involve exercise. How important do you see exercise as a way of helping to combat mental health? 
for me, it's always been my number one self-care strategy. Like right from the days where I was bullied at school and when my mum was going through her own mental health challenges, the gym was kind of like the first place that I felt at home. I found the gym really early on. Um, the weights room and training became my sanctuary. It became my safe place. It became the first place that I felt connected, the first place that I felt empowered, and the first place that I really discovered the connection between developing physical strength and then the mental fortitude or the resilience that was developed alongside that. So when I go into schools now and I'm talking to kids about self-care and about you know finding the things in life that bring them joy – Moving, moving well and moving often is something that ultimately brings me joy. It makes me feel strong. And, you know, my whole mantra, when I feel physically strong, I think strong thoughts is based around that. And I'd love to pay that gift forward. Alexa, you've had an incredibly interesting life, including a decision to be sober. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to that decision? Well, following following my mum's suicide attempt – I'm going to say our lives were medicated. So my mum was on this cocktail of antipsychotics and steroids. My dad self-medicated with a bottle of whiskey sometimes to a day. And he was a functioning alcoholic until he was just a plain old messy alcoholic until he actually died of liver cirrhosis as a direct consequence of being an alcoholic. And it was really interesting because when I started delving a little bit into the side of things, into sobriety, you know, they talk about the opposite of addiction. It's not being sobriety, it's feeling connected. And, you know, that's where my dad found his connection. He His only connection he felt in life was to this whiskey bottle. And when I first started going to the gym, I said that that was my first sense of connection. But I also found my dad's whiskey bottle and I started drinking from the age of 15. So I found that I drank my first bottle of rum by myself when I was 15 and I made myself so sick I could never touch rum again. You know, at 17, I was going to functions, like I would go out with the kids at school to try and fit in with the cool kids and I would drink myself into an absolute stupor to the point where I would go home and I was so terrified of telling my parents that I was drunk or that I'd drunk of my own accord that I would tell them my drink was spiked. My 21st birthday, I drank 21 tequila shots in a row went through up, came back, started drinking all over again, snuck out, took myself to a rugby blues function, snuck in by telling him I was a cheerleader until I got so drunk one of the cheerleaders had to take me home. And I would get myself into these really dangerous predicaments where, you know, like I remember being like 26, 27, getting in a cab to go home and having a full-on blackout. I, I'd got out of the cab, I'd fallen over, I'd smack my head on the curb and – Two passers-by had found me on the side of the road, called an ambulance, and I ended up in hospital on a drip, and I had to lie to my work about it. And it still would take me like another two years until my dad died, and that was kind of like the epiphany. So I went to his funeral. I drank his last bottle of whiskey. I danced on the bar. I fell off the bar. I threw up all over myself. I fell in a ditch. I missed my flight home. And I had a partner at the time, and I turned to him in the morning after this and was like, dear God, I am never drinking again. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And then he was like, rolled his eyes and he's like, yeah, 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 till next weekend. And um, that was the last time I touched alcohol. I flew back to Hong Kong and I was like, I'm not going to do what my dad did. I'm not going to go down that path. Enough is enough. I have no doubt that if I didn't stop drinking at that point, I would 100% have killed myself at some point or another. It's been, what, 13 years now of being sober. 
And it was, I would say, the best decision I've ever made, but also the hardest being that, you know, the best being that I gave myself the opportunity to know who I was without the crutch of alcohol. I feel like that is a huge problem in today's society. But it was hardest because it was like, for lack of a better term, it was social suicide. You know, it's amazing how much you don't have in common with a group of friends anymore if you're not out on the piss with them. It's amazing how much you don't have in common with your partner anymore if you met out on the piss. And now what do you do if you're not out drinking together? So it was kind of the beginning of the end of my relationship. I lost entire groups of friends and that's when I got into half Ironman. So, you know, once again, we come back to fitness and fitness really did save my life. How do you find it living in the eastern mm. suburbs, which has quite a strong party culture? It really does. Um, it was one of the first things I noticed, actually. Like when I first stopped drinking, it took me probably six months to a year to be able to go out again because I found it really confronting and it still amazes me as to how confrontational it can be for the people around you when you know, you're know you making decisions about your own life that they feel are indirectly or directly challenging their own lifestyle choices. You know, you'd go out and people are still like, come on, don't be so boring, have one for the road. And you're like, why would I have one for the road? And, you know, one, I've been sober for, you know, 12 or 13 years. Do you seriously think by you telling me to have one for the road or that I'm boring, that I'm going to succumb to that? Secondly, why would you want to be a person that would make me want to fall off the wagon? Is that going to make you feel better about yourself? So I think... For those people who are really early on in their journey, I think it would be really, really difficult because it is really hard to go out, especially if you have triggers that that's why you drink in the first place. Like for me, I didn't enjoy the taste of alcohol. I drank because I wanted to be drunk because I didn't like who I was sober. So for me, that was where my comfort zone came into play. Now I'm so far down on my journey that I don't care what anyone said to me. I'm so comfortable in my choices and why I've chosen to go down that path that nothing could sway me and I don't ever miss it. For anyone that is listening that may be struggling with alcohol but may be wanting to look towards sobriety, what would be one piece of advice that you would want to give them? Surround yourself with people who absolutely understand why it is that you want to do what you want to do and who are willing to support you through it. Um, my initial group of friends did not understand that at all and it was a really tough time for me. Now my group of friends, like Uber Alexa is the best thing to happen to them. I'm the best designated driver around and they're at the bar getting me a drink of water or a soft drink you know, before I've even had to ask. I said fitness saved my life and it really did. Like for me, when I quit drinking, I was really lucky at the time because there was a girl that was working at the gym that I was working at part-time and she'd been sober for four years. She'd been a full-on drug and alcohol addict. She'd been through rehab, like her, her whole family had forced her to go to rehab. And I remember saying to her when I first stopped drinking, because I, for me, drinking was an outlet. You know, so whenever I was really stressed out or triggered or wanted to forget my life or run away or escape or whatever, I would go out and drink. And I remember saying to her, good God, how do you do this? How do you stop being angry and frustrated? Like, I feel like I have so many emotions and no outlet for them outside of training. Like, what do you do with this? And she was like, you have to find an alternative outlet. You have to find a hobby that gives you a purpose or a focus greater than yourself. So I got into half Ironman and that was twofold. One, it meant that 
I wasn't at home in the weekends having massive FOMO with everyone out partying. Two, it gave me a focus or a purpose, something bigger than myself. And as I got better at it and started competing more and started winning races, you know, it became a little bit more of an addiction. So essentially, I replaced one addiction for another early on. Um, And then when I qualified for world champs, that was kind of like I realized I didn't need either of them anymore. But the biggest thing that Half Ironman gave me when I joined the triathlon club was an entirely new social circle. And like I said, the people you have, the people you hang out with, like you are who you hang with. You have to have supportive groups of friends. Like if you have people around you that are challenging your decision, and this is a huge decision, it's a really hard one to follow through. And if you have people who aren't supportive of you, it's not going to work. You know, for most people, you have to be strong enough in your choices or have people around you to reinforce those choices in order to make this work long term. We've spoken about on the show a number of times drug and alcohol usage in the eastern suburbs Mm. and particularly its use as a coping mechanism. I'm interested to know your thoughts on this and that part of eastern suburbs culture. I think it is really fucking hard to admit that you're unhappy and once you've admitted you're unhappy – It's even harder to figure out how to become happy. There is no one-size-fits-all strategy. You know, if there was, everyone would be sober. I think you kind of have to be really willing to do the work and you have to have people who are willing to do the work alongside you. For me, you know, when I decided to become sober, it was kind of like a massive four- or five-year journey of really breaking myself down and then putting myself back together again and figuring out what would work and who would work in my life. One of the reasons that I decided to get involved with a charity was that, again, like getting involved in that side of things is another of my self-care strategies. So fitness and being healthy and feeling healthy and feeling strong is a big priority for me, but then getting involved in charities that go out into the community and actually talk about drug and alcohol use and sobriety as well, that allowed me to be more involved, allowed me to get a firsthand account of what was happening out there, and it allowed me to give back in to the community. And as people were also trying to you know, join me with getting sober, it gave me a reinforced will to do it you know, for them as well. But there is like, it's Eastern suburbs, you go out now, I remember one of my first New Year's here and I was out and there was actually like a team out of players and they were all basically standing on a rooftop talking about all the drugs they had at home and I was just sitting there going, what the hell, man? You guys are a professional sporting team and you're basically standing out here telling me how wasted you're going to get. Like, what is this? But, you know, that seems there's such a huge drinking and drug culture that surrounds not just the communities, but sporting communities as well. And it's rife. Like it starts really, really early on. And it seems that, you know, if you're not drinking, then you're doing coke in the weekends, you know, and I've never got into that side of things at all, but it seems to be a really big problem. But I don't think people see it as a problem because everybody is doing it. It's seen as far more normal to be out now and absolutely off your chops than it is to be out and sober. People question your decision to be out sober as opposed to questioning as to why you're out you know, off your head. Changing gears a tiny bit. You're quoted as saying, there is nothing more rewarding than seeing a woman become empowered in the weights room and then watching how this changes her attitude towards the rest of her life. Tell us a bit about this. 
fitness for me, training, like I said, was the first place that I really felt like I had come home. It was the first place that I felt empowered. And one of the biggest things around that was that I was super lucky that when I first walked into a gym, I had an incredibly positive experience because it's not like that for everybody. I know people that have walked into a gym and had the worst experience of their life when they've walked in and all of a sudden they've decided that fitness is not for them and it's ruined it for the rest of their life. Like for me as a coach now, like I find it an incredible privilege to have somebody who's never explored that side of themselves before and all of a sudden decide that they are being empowered by their coach and it's something that they want to continue doing. I had one lady called Lizzie come in and I talk about her story all the time because it's so inspiring to me. She had never set foot in a weights room before. She'd been in a massive car accident when she was younger and broken pretty much every bone in her body. She was also terrified of the weights room, terrified of being judged, terrified that she couldn't do anything, um, terrified of you know not being strong enough. And she's also like, as well as being female, she works, she was a lawyer. So she worked in a very male-dominated environment and she also lived with bipolar. So she was medicated for that. And when she first came to me, not only had she been in this accident, but she was being bullied in the workplace by all the men. And so one of her biggest reasons for coming in was that she wanted to feel strong and she wanted to see what she was capable of. And honestly, like we must have trained for sort of six months. We went right from the basics where all she could lift was you know, her own body weight and we did a ton of stuff with that. And then the day that she lifted a 30 kg trap bar deadlift, and this is like, I mean, I work at a gym that is incredibly hardcore. Like to them, that's nothing. To her, it was the goddamn best day of her life. And she made me video it and she took it back to the office with her and she showed all the boys in the office the video of her deadlifting. And she messaged me that day and she was like, Alexa, this has to be one of the best days of my life. For the first time in my life, I came back to the office I stood up for myself. I felt like I could say no. I felt like I could set boundaries and I felt like I could ask for what I truly deserved. And she was like, so thank you. And that pretty much sums up that statement. Like watching her lift that weight and seeing how it transformed her mentally into what she was able to do when she went back into her office in her workplace. I mean, that's incredible to me. That's the kind of stuff that I live for. What a wonderful story. Isn't it cool? So what's next for Alexa? That's a great question. I read this awesome book called 100 Things. It's by a guy called Sebastian Terry. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a motivational speaker. He's awesome because he like gets on stage in his barefoot. He does his own thing. God help anyone who tries to tell him otherwise. Um, but he's written this blog in this book called 100 Things, and it was basically all about living your life to the fullest. And saying yes to everything and then figuring it out later. Like he got to 28, he was in finance and he lost one of his best mates to a mental illness. And he was like, there has to be more to life than just coming to work and paying the bills. There has to be. And so he basically just started writing this bucket list of things he wanted to do in his life. Things that would bring him joy, that would put him outside his comfort zone, that would make him rethink what life was all about. And he said the more that he wrote this bucket list – the more he got it in his head that these were the things that he wanted to do, the more he started finding himself meeting the people and being in the right places where he would 
have the opportunity to do these things. And once he'd done one thing, invariably along the journey, he'd meet somebody else who would lead to a next item on his bucket list. And he started doing all these things. And that's pretty much all he does now. He quit his job in finance. He basically travels around the world doing every single thing that he's ever wanted to do. I mean, what an incredible life. And when I I toured the West Coast with a guy called Kevin Hines, who's one of probably the world's foremost suicide prevention advocates, incredible storyteller. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. He survived. He now travels the world telling the story of hope. And when I was traveling the West Coast with him, I got a message from a girlfriend of mine who was over there. And she's like, before you fly out, I really want you to come and meet this friend of mine. Turns out it was Sebastian Terry. So I turn up, he's heading out to do, he's going to his own, like a book, a book review He gives me a copy of his book and he's like, let me know what you think. I took it back with me, took me two days to read it, got to number 57 and went, messaged him and was like, have you crossed a desert? And he was like, no, I have not. Are you going to cross a desert? And I was like, absolutely. When I was in Hong Kong, I met, I used to do all these crazy Ironman races and I met a producer who was really interested in me taking on like some of the toughest races in the world. And one of the races that we looked into was this race called the Mongol Derby, which is a thousand kilometer race across the Mongolian desert on semi-wild horses. And it had been in my head ever since then. I grew up riding horses. I was always like, man, that'd be epic to do because it follows the path of Genghis Khan. And the program never went ahead. And it's been sitting in the back of my head for 10 years. So after reading his book, I came back, I messaged the guys from the Mongol Derby and went, I want in, how do I make this happen? Three months later, I'd had my interview, I'd paid my 20 grand entry fee and I had registered for this race and I decided to set up a GoFundMe so I could raise $100,000 for living for mental health. So with me doing that, you know, all the money that I raised from that will help me to continue to be able to go into schools and do the presentations and talk to the kids about mental health for free. So that is kind of what is next, the big thing. How inspiring. (laughs) I try. Now- Before we let you go, there are three questions we ask every single person that comes onto Could You Voice. Oh, God. You need to declare the best beach in the eastern suburbs, where sells the best coffee, and where you can get the best burgers. Go. Beach. I actually love Redleaf because there are all the puppies there. You get to colour them all. I love Skittle Lane is my favourite place for coffee. I've been dragged out of an actual line in a coffee shop before with someone taking me to that, and hands down they do the best long blacks around. And Bondi Tony's would be my best burger place. If you're listening, Tony, you owe me a free burger. That is all. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Alexa, now if people want to learn more about the work that you're doing, where should they head to? Best place is at Action Alexa on Instagram. Slide into my DMs. I'm pretty open to them. But don't send me any dodgy pics. If you want to send me any pics at all, send me dog ones. Better (laughs) response. (laughs) Alexa, thank you for joining us on Coogee Voice. Thank you for having me. What an inspiring conversation. Now, if you'd like to learn more about Alexa, you can find her on Instagram on Action Alexa. You've been listening to Coogee Voice. 